Oh God, be still and know that I am God. I am your Father. You are my children. Trust me. Why is it so hard to learn that lesson? Dear Father, why is it so difficult? Lock it into our minds. Not just as an intellectual affirmation, but lock it experientially into our lives as well. We humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I drove by a church the other day, had a sign in front of it. You know how these, they, they change the signs week after week. I thought this one was a, this, this, this is prescient. The sign read, a self-made man, all right, a self-made man is a fine example of unskilled labor. I said, that was brilliant. A self-made woman is a fine example of unskilled labor. And if what Dan and Brad have just sung, Children of the Heavenly Father, is the hymn of those who trust, then surely the hymn of the self-made man and the self-made woman is that set of lyrics long ago, and I'm not going to sing it to you. You remember the words, though. Got it online. Have it right here. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm Certain, I lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway, but more, much more than this. I did it how? I did it my way. The story of this generation. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, but more, much more than this. I did it. My way. And that is precisely why we are in the trouble we're in today. In our relationships, in our souls. To think I did all that, and may I say, not in a shy way. Boy, that is just the height of hubris. To think I did all that, and may I say, not in a shy way. No, no, oh no, not me. I did it my way. That was what happened to Lot. Then it happened to Sarah. Then Abraham. They did it my way. Poor Lot. Last Sabbath when we left Lot with Uncle Abraham, Lot was riding off into the sunset, Las Vegas, here we come. But there's a most intriguing twist in the way Moses relates the story of Lot. And I want you to open your Bible up to where we left off last Sabbath in this brand new series. Genesis of Love. In fact, let's put the title slide up before we get to Genesis 13. You're finding Genesis 13, but we'll put the title slide up. This is a series on relationships. I had the privilege of having the first three. The rest of the staff is coming in. We're going to move this through 
all the way through the summer. Genesis of love. The opening one was Secret of the Blueprint. Last Sabbath was Secret of the Rock Pile. I trust some of you built a rock pile this last week. And then today, Secret of the Twinkling Stars. Those of you watching on television right now, we're delighted to have you. You can go to that website, www.pmchurch.tv. The entire series, no matter who's preaching, each part will be archived at that website. And you may, at your leisure, ponder the relationships of life. Work relationships, play relationships, neighborhood relationships, family relationships, marital relationships. It doesn't matter. Relationships front and center in this book of beginnings. Okay, so we're going back to Genesis 13, where we left magnanimous Uncle Abraham and rather spoiled nephew Lot. Uh, Genesis 13, you didn't bring a Bible, it's a pew, grab the pew Bible in front of you. This is, you want to track, this is, a, this is a continuing story here that we have all in one little unit today. It's page 8 in your pew Bible, which will be the New King James. I'm going to be back in the uh, common English Bible. I'm liking this. I love getting new translations anyway. I like to feel the freshness of, of another perspective and rendering. This is uh, Genesis 13. Here we go. Verse 11. Poor Lot. So, verse 11. Lot chose for himself the entire Jordan Valley. Lot set out toward the east and they separated from each other. And Abraham, verse 12, settled in the land of Canaan. And Lot settled near the cities of the valley and pitched his tent close to Sodom. Hit the pause button right there. None of us ever intends to get directly into sin and live within its precincts. But if we can just be close enough, you know, I'll walk by the magazine rack. I'm not going to stop. I'll skid my mouse by that website. I won't stay. I'm just passing by. Nobody wants to camp there. But I want to be close enough to just keep my eyes on it just in case. That's the way it always starts. Moses, who records this story centuries later. Moses. Notice what he does now. A little literary twist to show how it happened. This is now chapter 14. Chapter 14, drop down to verse 11. Enemy, an enemy is attacked. The Las Vegas of that generation, Sodom and Gomorrah, a consortium of rebels, and they've taken everybody captive, verse 11, and they took everything from Sodom and Gomorrah, including its food supplies, and left, and they also took Lot, this is verse 12, chapter 14, Abraham's nephew, who lived where? Where did he live? In Sodom. Chapter 13, he's close to Sodom, he's near Sodom, I'm just checking it out, but by the time he gets kidnapped, he's inside the city. What always starts out is, you know, I'm just, I'm keeping an eye on it. You understand? Don't get all excited. I'm, I'm not there. It always starts that way. And inexorably, we are drawn into the very precincts of what we know we shouldn't be in. Yeah. Morality tale in just a couple prepositions. Beside and in. Thank God for magnanimous again, Uncle Abraham, who could have clucked his tongue and said, poor boy, you made your bed, now lie in it. Not Uncle Abraham. Selfless Uncle Abraham musters an army, musters an army, and goes after those rebels. Drop down to uh, verse 14. We're in chapter 14, verse 14. Down to verse 14. And when Abraham heard that his relative 
Lot had been captured. He took all of the loyal men born in his household, 318. Now, you do the arithmetic, 318, and if they're married and if they have children, we're talking of a household 1,000 plus. We're talking a moving caravan of a village, huge with relationships, which is our theme, of course. Plenty of relationships in Abraham's household. He gets 318 men and he goes after the enemy. As far as Dan, verse 15, and during the night, shh, he and his servants divided themselves up against them, attacked and chased them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And he brought back all the looted property together with his relative Lot and Lot's property, wives, and people. Unforgettable. Rescue. Abraham and his small band, and they're all set free. And then Abraham responds. Abraham responds in a... We were up here looking at the elders a moment ago. Modeling, exemplary. Abraham responds in an exemplary way that has been imitated and followed generation after generation after generation from this very moment until today. Watch this. Verse verse, uh, 18. The kings are coming out. The kings that have been set free and the kings that were not molested. They're coming out and a certain king... This is verse 18. Now Melchizedek... The king of Salem, the precursor to Jerusalem, and the priest of El Elyon. This is the first time the word priest appears in Holy Scripture, indicating there has been, obviously in existence, a regularized sacrificial worship system that has been taking place from the very beginning. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, from the city of peace, Salem, comes out, priest of El Elyon, the only place in the Bible this name will appear. God Most High, coming in. Common English Bible renders it as it is, El Elyon. Priest of El Elyon, and he brought bread and wine. This isn't a communion service. This is royal food. He brought bread and wine. And verse 19, he blessed Abraham. Bless Abraham by El Elyon, creator of heaven and earth. So he's a, he's a priest of the Most High God. Verse 20, bless El Elyon who gave you the victory over your enemies. And notice this, the end of verse 20. And Abraham gave Melchizedek one-tenth of everything. One-tenth. The technical word for one-tenth is tithe. He returned a tithe of everything. And like an unbroken chain, Abraham's faith response to the God who gave him the victory has been followed, imitated, and practiced ever since. And I want to tell you something, since this is a series on relationships, I have seen it again and again, and I'm speaking pastorally and anecdotally now. I have seen it again and again, over and over and over again. In relationships, whether it's just you in that relationship, because you're all alone, or there are two of you, or there are five of you, or there are ten of you. In relationships that honor this one-tenth business. Returning to God, what he says is mine. Returning the tithe, I have seen it again and again. Honoring that one-tenth return. The supernatural anointing of God upon his partners. I'll take you, God, as my CFO. (laughs) Financially, I don't know how we will ever be able to pull this off, but I take you as my CFO. You can have your tenth back. You could ask for ten tenths. Uh, Isn't that true? He said, just give me the tenth. I don't need your money. Give me the tenth. It's your pledge that you really do want me to be CFO, chief financial officer of your home, your marriage, your relationship. I love this. And I like it from the uh, Common English Bible. This is Malachi 3.10. This is one of the great, great, great promises in Scripture. 
Bring the whole tenth part. You got a tenth part? Yeah, because you have ten tens. Bring the whole tenth part to the storage house so that there might be mood in, food rather in my house. This is God speaking. And listen, listen. Please test me. You haven't been doing this? Please test me. You're not sure about this? Please test me in this, says the Lord of heavenly forces. Keep reading. See whether I do not open all the windows of the heavens for you and empty out a blessing until there is enough. I like that. You'll get enough. The nine-tenths will be more than the ten-tenths if you return my one-tenth. Test me. Please, I beg you, test me. What a, what, a, what a promise for relationships. I invite you to do that, by the way. You haven't been? I invite you. Just test it. You don't, you don't say, Dwight, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. No, just do it, for, do it for three months. Do it for three months. Test him. He says, please test me. You've got nothing to lose and you have everything to gain. All right. Story goes on, verse 1 of chapter 15. After these events, Abraham returning tithe, rescue of Lot, and so on. After these events, the Lord's word came to Abraham in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abraham. I am your protector. Your reward will be very great. And Abraham says, oh, please. Lord God, what can you possibly give me? Since I still, still, the emphasis on the word still, I still have no children. The head of my household is Eliezer, a man from Damascus. Since you haven't, verse 3, Abraham goes on, since you haven't given me any children, the head of my household is going to be my heir. That's what's going to happen. He's going to get, this is how your promise will come true. And just like that, and I like it in the CEB, the Lord's word came immediately. Whoa, stop right there. Don't think that thought. Immediately the Lord's word came to him. This man will not be your heir. Your heir will definitely be your very own biological child. And then he said, hey, Abraham, come here, come here. Brought him outside. It's in the middle of the night. He says, look up at the sky. I want you to count the stars if you think you can count them. And God went on, this is how many children you will have. And Abraham trusted the Lord, and the Lord recognized Abraham's high moral character. Look at those stars, Abraham. Don't you just love looking at stars? I tell you what, it can be be ten below at midnight in the winter. Or a sweaty 85 degrees at midnight in the summer. But when you go outside and you stand under the canopy of space. Oh, we found a great picture. Look at this picture. Isn't that something? That's a little church in England. And they just ran that camera up. Little fisheye lens looking at the heavens. Oh, there's something mysterious. There's something majestic. There's something glorious about standing beneath the the stars of the universe. By the way, I went to Wikipedia and I said, okay, Wikipedia, you who know everything, how much can the naked eye see? And Wikipedia gave me this answer. The naked eye, the, the naked eye that has become, how do they put it here? The dark adapted human eye. So you've got to come out of the house, no street lights, come on, turn your porch light off, neighbors, you turn your lights all off. So the, the dark adapted human eye can can see 5,600 stars. That's pretty good. 5,600. You can't count them. You can just see them. But if you can get to conditions that, that, that are called perfect dark sky conditions, for that, let's go to the, let's go to, oh, if I could just go to Chile, 
Anybody here from Chile? If I could just go to Chile and go up to almost 9,000 feet, I'm talking about the Cerro Paranal Observatory. Almost 9,000 feet. Take a look at that observatory. Almost 9,000 feet, pollution gone. Light, light pollution disappeared. Now you have the perfect dark sky condition. Guess how many stars you can see up there? Naked eye, 45,000 stars. 45,000. But if you live in a city like many of us do, and you got, you got light pollution all around you spilling out of those street lamps and all, the number of stars you can see, 200 to 500 stars may be visible. Ah, there's something mysterious about a, a, a midnight field with those pinpoints of glory. God said, Abraham, I want you to step out. Come on, boy, step out. Count those stars, will you? Reminds me of that little popular nursery rhyme in English lullaby that Jane Taylor composed back in 1806. Say it with me. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. Not plural, singular. Twinkle, twinkle, say it with me. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder what you are. Like a diamond in the sky. Well, that's what you get for trying to follow me. <laughs> that's the second line. Anyway, you know the thing. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Up above the sky, so high, like a diamond in the sky. I couldn't figure out, you just got this blank look on your face, like, twinkle, twinkle, little star. Abraham, come, come, come. Abraham, step out. Look, look. Look at those twinkling stars. Can you count them? No, you can't. That's how many descendants you have. Wow. And Abraham believes. Look at verse 6 again. And Abraham trusted the Lord, and the Lord recognized Abraham's high moral character. I like that. Abraham believed. In spite of all the evidence to the contrary, not a single child in sight. He believed. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, I believe. The paragon of human faith. Wow. Thank you, Abraham. Paragon of human faith. So that when the Apostle Paul comes along and he wants to champion righteousness, that is by faith, guess who is exhibit A of human faith? Who do you suppose is exhibit A? Abraham. Watch this. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. So what are we going to say? Are we going to find that Abraham is our ancestor on the basis of genealogy? Is that the big deal? Abraham is the DNA of all of us? No. Keep reading. Because if Abraham was made righteous because of his actions, he would not have had reason to brag. He would have had reason to, a reason to brag, but not in front of God. No. Keep reading. Verse 3. What does the scripture say? And we just read it. Abraham had faith in God, and it was credit to him... As righteousness, Abraham trusted, paragon of faith, and we are to follow. N.T. Wright, the uh, very respected New Testament scholar, in his majestic treatment of justification, which I read over the winter, justification, God's plan and Paul's vision. N.T. Wright, let me put his words on the screen for you uh, today. This is N.T. Wright writing, he's an Englishman, Paul's view of the cataclysmic eruption, that's eruption, that's, that's coming in, breaking in. Paul's view of the cataclysmic breaking in of God into the history of Israel and the world in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. 
was that this heart-stopping, talking about the resurrection of Jesus Messiah, it was that this heart-stopping, show-stopping, chart-topping moment was, despite initial appearances, the very thing for which the entire history of Israel from Abraham onward, the entire history of Israel under Torah from Moses onward, and indeed the entire history of humanity from Adam onward had been waiting, end quote. As it turns out, exhibit A of faith is not Abraham. Exhibit A of faith is Jesus Christ. What Paul is championing is not Abraham. In you, all the families of earth will be blessed. That's not Abraham blessing all the families. That's somebody's coming through Abraham who will bless all the families of earth. That's Christ himself. N.T. Wright again, put it on the screen. God promised certain things which encompass the entire, and he makes, a, he makes a noun out of about eight words hyphenated together. Single plan through Israel for the world. That's what he's calling the plan from the beginning. Too many evangelicals look at the Old Testament and say, well, that's the Old Testament, it's gone now. Now we're in the New Testament covenant. No, 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 N.T. Wright. I tell you, I am very impressed with conclusions he has come to. No, 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 no. He says the whole, whole, from old to new, everything is compacted into a single strategic plan from God. There's never been a dispensation, and then this is gone. This has always been. So that's what he's talking about here. God promised Abraham certain things which encompass the entire single plan through Israel for the world. And the proper, proper response to a promise, particularly a promise from God, is to believe it. That's true for you and me. The proper response is for us to believe When God makes a promise, we can count him. We can count him in on that promise. If it's Malachi 3.10, he says, test me, I prove, I promise you that I will be true to this promise. You can trust God. Abraham, the paragon of trust, the pinnacle of human faith. Wow. One more line from from N.T. Wright. Genesis 15.6, this is Wright writing. Genesis 15, 6 is the foundation charter of Abraham's family, and it has not changed from that day to this. Abraham believed, and so must we. It's the only hope, this trusting in God, for our closest and dearest relationships. You want to talk relationship? The only hope for every relationship that matters to you, the only hope is this kind of radical trust in God. That's the only hope. If trust breaks down, look out. Keep an eye on that relationship. Keep a careful eye. It could melt down too. Chapter 16. Verse 1. And Sarah, Abraham's wife, had not been able to have children. Since she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar, Sarah said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from giving birth. Boy, isn't that the way we are? God did this to me. God kept me from having birth. That's just just our default position as humans, isn't it? God's been hard on me. He let me down here. The Lord has kept me from having birth. By the way, infertility studies today show that it's not just the woman who uh, wrestles with infertility. So does the man. It could have been Abraham the problem. We don't know. But she took the brunt because back then it had to be the woman. Studies today show that's not true. Oh, Abraham, I've been thinking about this. The Lord has kept me. How does she put it here? The Lord has kept me from giving birth. So go to my servant. Maybe she will provide me with children. And Abraham did just as Sarah said. Verse 3, and after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, he's 85 now, Abraham's wife Sarah took her Egyptian servant Hagar and gave her to her husband Abraham 
as his wife, verse 4, and so he slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. Meltdown. Yo, friend of God, what's happened now? Paragon of faith. What went wrong? Please. Ten years of trusting God. Exhibit A of faith. And one night sleeping with Hagar. And exhibit A of faith becomes exhibit A of faithlessness. Sad, isn't it? All because I did it my way. Croon it all you want. I did it my way. I did it my way. I wouldn't be very proud of that, quite frankly. He did it his way. And look what we got. Patriarchs and prophets, put that on the screen, please. Both Abraham and Sarah, both, husband and wife, both Abraham and Sarah distrusted the power of God, and it was this error that led to the marriage with Hagar. End quote. Lost trust in God's power. Do, are, are we really, come on, come on, come on. Are we any different, really? Are we any different? Tell me. Are we any different? We're not any different, are we? Please. Do we, do you, I, when push comes to shove, do we mistrust, distrust the power of God? Come on, pull that old yo-yo out, Dwight. Please, do it again for us. Well, okay. You got to first put it on your finger. He's in trouble. The other thing is, you know, fingers get bigger over the years. And this makes it harder and harder to do. All right. So this is a yo-yo, right? You know what? Human trust is, a, is called the yo-yo trait. You notice that? It's a yo-yo trait. One minute you're up, next minute you're down, then you're up, then you're down, up, down. Have you noticed sometimes it feels like the down is very long? Like, God, I mean, when do you pull me back up? I've been down here spinning. In fact, I'm losing my spin. Do something. Down. But sometimes it feels like, look at my health. Do you understand what I'm going through right now? It just feels like you're just down. Nobody's pulling me up. Our financial, have you seen our bank account lately, God? I mean, this would be the time to go, whoop, and pull us us out of this thing. Down, up. We trust God when we're up, don't we? It's when we're down that it's hard. The up part's not so bad. Ooh, because I can feel him there. But it's when you're at the end of your rope. You see, when you're at the end of your rope, that's where faith steps in. It has to. Because when you feel the hands, then you're not living by faith. You're living by feeling. It's when you're down at the end of your rope that you have to believe there's going to come a tug. I hope. It's a yo-yo trade of trust. Abraham's up. Abraham's down. Abraham's up. Oh, I'll go to Canaan, God. Oh, I'll go to Canaan. Yes, I will. Oh, I'll move. I'll move my whole family on the basis of a voice in the dark. But by the way, Sarah, when we get to Egypt, just tell them you're my sister, okay? I mean, you know, God can't do everything. He's up. He's down. Then he believes. Oh, I count the stars. I believe. And then one chapter later, he's down again. Hey, will you sleep with my maid? I'm thinking that's the only way we're going to get kids. So you sleep with her. Marry her if you want to call that. And let's go. The yo-yo trait of trust. 
Are we any different? We're not, a, we're not a day different than Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. God bless little Hagar. Look at this. Go back. So Abraham sleeps with her in verse, uh, what is this, verse, verse 4. Read that again. And Abraham slept with Hagar, verse 4, and she became pregnant. And, uh-oh, when she realized this, that she was pregnant, she no longer respected her mistress, because I can do something you can't do. And Sarah said to Abraham, this harassment is your fault. Why are the men all laughing? We've heard it before, that's why. fact of the matter is, it generally is a man's fault. Sarah was right. Ever since the fall of the human race, the meltdown in the Garden of Eden, and just outside the gates of the Garden of Eden, God says, oh, by the way, Eve, your desire now will be for your husband. Not for all men, just this man, this ish. Your desire will be for him, and he will rule over you. God talking about some kind of autocratic ruling? No, he's talking about, listen, when you have a system of equals as I do in marriage, somebody has to break the law jam, and I'm asking the husband to become the one to be self-crucifying, self-emptying, self-giving, and get this thing back into gear. Somebody has to take the initiative, and it's the husband. So it was, it, it was Abraham's fault. Paul, by the way, comes along and he takes that little Genesis admonition and he puts it, let me put it on the screen for you. Paul says, hey guys, this is the way we're supposed to live. This would be, would you go back please to, uh, yeah, there we go, Ephesians 5. Husbands, Paul says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's agapao, that's self-crucifying love. Husbands, you crucify yourselves. Get this thing out of neutral. Get this jam, log jam removed. You. I'm asking you. God is asking a godly man to so crucify himself before his wife that she knows it is out of self-emptying love that he only responds to her. Now let's go back to Genesis 16 again. Let's put that verse back up that you had just a moment ago. You got it. Genesis 16, verse 4. And so Abraham slept with Hagar. And she became pregnant, but when she realized this, she was no longer respected by, she no longer respected her mistress. Keep going into verse 5 now. Sarah says to Abraham, this harassment is your fault. I allowed you to embrace my servant. You know why it's, you know why it's Abraham's fault, by the way? He should have said, you know what, Sarah? Great idea. Wrong. We're not doing it. God said it's for you and me. Ten years I've been waiting on this. We're not, we're not, we're not blowing the plan now. He could have stopped it. And she would have said, yes, you're right. But he went along with it. She said to Abraham, this harassment is your fault. I allowed you to embrace your servant. And when she realized she was pregnant, I lost her respect. Let the Lord decide who is right, you or me. <laughs> oh, my. Patriarchs and prophets, let's put that on the screen, please. Patriarchs and prophets, let me read this to you. The instruction given to Abraham touching the sacredness of the marriage relation was to be a lesson for all ages. It declares that the rights and happiness of this relation are to be carefully guarded, even at a great sacrifice. Now keep reading. Sarah was the only true wife of Abraham. Her rights. Now I want to tell you something, gentlemen. Are you listening? I'm talking just to the men now. Gentlemen, your wife, the one married to you, the child, the, the, the girl of your youth that you married, as it is for most of us, 
That woman has rights. She has rights guaranteed by her relationship with you. And those rights are that you would treat her and her alone as your wife. With all the accoutrements that attend to that, she has rights. Isn't that amazing? I like that. And I'm a husband. Sarah was the only true wife of Abraham. Her rights as a wife and mother, no other person was entitled to share. You may be tempted. Well, I'll just share a little bit. Don't you share? Don't you share a second? Not a moment. Not a moment. Your wife has rights. You covenanted to protect those rights until death do you part. Not a moment can you share. So, her rights as a wife and mother, no other person was entitled to share. God had called Abraham to be the father of the faithful, and his life was to stand as an example of faith to succeeding generations. But his faith had not been perfect. He had shown distrust of God in concealing the fact that Sarah was his wife, and again in his marriage with Hagar, end quote. And so the pregnant servant girl, Hagar, driven to tears by her jealous and angry mistress, fled the camp, wandered lost in the wilderness, huddled beside a spring of water, when now, for the first time in sacred history, three realities begin. Three great firsts now take place, and I'm going to tell them to you. First, number one. It is the first time in Holy Scripture that the angel, capital A angel, of the Lord shows up to a human being. This is the angel who was in the fiery furnace, and he says, I am who I am. This is the divine go-between, the second person of the Godhead. He shows up to a, an Egyptian servant girl. First appearance of the angel of the Lord. Number two, first time God ever names a baby before it's born. First time in history. And number three, First time a human testifies to actually visibly seeing God, she names the place, I saw God. Three firsts for a little Egyptian servant slave girl who will become the mother of Ishmael, Abraham's first child, by the way. The father of the Arabs. God reserved three firsts for the race one day, they bring a religion called Islam to the human race. Three firsts for the mother of the children of the East. Three firsts. Wow. Apparently, you can melt down and God can still salvage something pretty good out of that mess. And if he can do it with them, he can do it with you and me. No marriage is beyond his help. No family is too broken to be healed. No life too down to not again be raised up into the hand of the God who has a string to your heart. Wow. But our story concludes with three interesting numbers. I've got to share these with you. Isn't this something? Read the last verse of uh, Genesis 16. The last verse, verse 16. And Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar gave birth to Ishmael for Abraham. Okay, how old was he? How old was he? 86. Okay, now, keep that number in your brain. Now let's read the first verse of Genesis 17, the very next verse. Genesis 17. When Abraham was, how old? 99. 
Watch this. When Abraham was 99, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I'm El Shaddai, the omnipotent one. Walk with me and be trustworthy. Isn't that amazing? You have here at the end of chapter 16, how old was Abraham again? And then you have here at the beginning of the very next chapter, how old is Abraham again? 99. Ladies and gentlemen, watch this. The white space in your Bible, the white space in your Bible from the end of 16 to the beginning of 17 is 13 years. Do the arithmetic. 13 years. 13 years of white space and not a word from God. God speaks in 16. He'll speak in 17. 13 years of silence. There are two lessons that immediately come to my mind, and let me share them with you. Lesson number one. Lesson number one, when I mess up my life by doing it my way, God sometimes lets me have my way on my own without him. Without him. Oh, he was there. Not a word. No word. Thirteen long years. Was God being angry? Was he being petulant with Abraham about Abraham melting down? No, 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 no. But every parent knows that there are times when we must let our children reap what they sow without our parental interference or the lesson will not be learned. Thus for thirteen quiet years, Abraham and Sarah, Ishmael and Hagar live in the white space of God's silence the white space of his silence. Oh, I don't want to melt down to where God says, do I, I'm going to have to give you a little bit of silence. But there are two lessons. Here's the other one. Put the second one up, please. Life is not nonstop headlines with God. See, one lesson is negative. This is the positive one. I like this. There are vast swaths of no news time in every life where we must live our lives in the white space. No headlines, no big news bulletin, just white space. Like the yo-yo up and down, up and down, faithfully following God. No bulletins to the universe, just white space. But guess what? A life without headlines is very okay with God. For 40 years, Moses lives in the white space of Midian and not a single headline for 40 years. For 43 years, Elisha, the greatest miracle worker outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, for 43 years, there is no word as Elisha enters into the white space of no headlines, for 30 years, living in the quiet obscurity of a mountain village, Jesus lives in the white space of no headlines. Not a word. Living in the white space of quiet trust. That's where we've been called to live as well. I tell you what, you watch, you, watch the, uh, you watch the media in Hollywood. Mercy. They have you thinking that to be really successful like the superstar jocks 
and stars and starlets to be really successful. You need to be churning out headline after headline after headline. Rubbish. God is very big on the white space of quiet trust. Living in the white space of quiet trust. Some of you, most of us, are there right now. Some of you are a little agitated right now. You're saying, you know what, God? I mean, this has been a lot of white space. I could go for another headline. Moses finally gave up that prayer. He just said, 40 years, it's over. My life is done. And at 80 years of age, God comes into Moses' life, and he says, by the way, enough white space. Let's move to the next chapter. At 80 years of age, You're not too old. Living in the white space of quiet trust. Let's put that on the screen. Living in the white space of quiet trust. That's the moral of the story we've shared today. How to live in the white space of quiet trust. You don't need headlines. Feels like you're dangling. Dangling at the end of God's string right now, and there's no comeuppance. You're just down there, down there, down there. God says, that's okay. I know exactly where you are. When I need you, you'll hear from me. Living in the white space of quiet trust. I wish you would. No, Dwight, I wish you would. How do you feel? I wish we would be a whole lot more okay in our lives if we did. Little girl was going home from church. Oh, mommy, she said, so early. This is rough. We learned a new song today in Sabbath school. Oh, you did, honey. What was the song? She said, the teacher taught us. We learned it. Trust and okay. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and okay. And mother thought, you know what? That's good. It's okay to live in the white space. It's okay.